Welcome to The Keyword. My name is Cole, and today I'm speaking with Nancy Harhut, the author of Using Behavioral Science. And in this episode, Nancy's going to break down how to use what we know about psychology to improve the results for our marketing campaigns. Enjoy. Hi, Nancy. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to speak to you because I want to help our audience understand how to make our marketing messages more brain friendly, which is a concept that I've picked up from you. So I'm really excited to dive in. And where I wanted to start with is when did you realize that behavioral science could improve marketing results? All right. Well, that's a good question. First of all, thank you very much, Cole. I'm happy to be here. Delighted to be able to share what I know with your audience. And uh, so, yeah, the when I first began to become aware of it, I had read this book called uh, Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion by Robert Cialdini. And I was taking uh, notes in the margin and underlining things and just thinking about the campaigns I was working on for my clients and how certain of the things I was reading in his book might apply. So I was like, wow, this is almost tailor-made for marketers. Even though he didn't really write it that way, it just seemed perfect. So I started to apply some of the things that I learned, think about how that might work in a marketing situation, and uh, they started to work, right? So I'm, you know, slipping these things in and, you know, certainly still relying on marketing best practices, but adding to those best practices the behavioral science, and I started to see the, you know, the the lift in response, the lift in engagement. And um, once that started to happen, I was like, this is the way to go. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to walk away from this. I'm going to keep using it and I'm going to actually become transparent with my clients and say, Hey, this is why I've done it the way I've done it. And once clients start to hear about it, they're like, Oh my gosh, give me more of that. We're, you know, we're loving it. So I think that was kind of the, uh, the beginning of the story, I guess. Yeah. And, and for me, what really stood out was the way you described that we're bombarded with so many different messages now online as consumers that uh, whenever we can apply some of these behavioral science techniques, it allows us to cut through the noise a little bit more or give people shortcuts to make decisions. And as I mentioned before, like one of the phrases that you use is the idea of making our marketing messages brain friendly. So behavioral science, a bit of a mouthful. I like brain friendly. What does that mean? Sure. Yeah. I and mean, that's the thing, you know, you say behavioral science and people's eyes roll back in their head like, <laughs> oh my gosh, that, that sounds technical. It sounds uh, boring. It sounds complicated. Uh, but actually the, the way that I use it, the way the book is written, it's not that at all. So behavioral science is really just very simply the study of how people behave and more specifically why they do what they do. And it turns out that very often, even though we think that we make really well thought out, well considered decisions, and, and by extension, we think our prospects and our customers also make these well-thought-out, well-considered decisions, it turns out they're very often that's not the case. More often than not, we're actually influenced by other factors at play, factors that we're not even aware of. And so for marketers, it presents a really great opportunity to get out ahead of this, right? Over the millennia, humans have developed certain automatic, instinctive, reflexive responses, certain decision-making shortcuts or hardwired behaviors, if you will, as a way to conserve mental energy. And so what's happened now is we just cruise along through life on autopilot. We encounter a certain situation and we just default to these hardwired behaviors. We just rely on these decision-making shortcuts. It, it helps us, you know, conserve mental energy. It helps us get through the day. We couldn't possibly evaluate every bit of information before making a decision or we'd never get around to making any. So we rely on these decision-making shortcuts. And from a marketing perspective, if we get out ahead of that and we start to trigger these automatic behaviors in our marketing messages, it just makes things a lot easier. So when I talk about brain-friendly marketing, uh, what I'm talking about is creating messages that the brain just is going to be more likely to, to notice, to understand, to remember, and to act upon. So 
uh, for example, there's a there's a behavioral science principle called the von Restorff effect, and it basically says that things that stand out from their surroundings are the things that are more likely to get noticed and remembered. So, you know, very simply, what would that mean? Uh, it would maybe these days it would mean writing a subject line but all capping one word or including an emoji at the beginning of that subject line. Why? Because our customers and prospects, as they're scrolling their inbox, they're not going to see emoji, 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 or cap word, cap word, cap word. But when they do see it, it's going to stand out. They're going to be more likely to notice it, more likely to remember it. Um, there's a principle called cognitive fluency that says people prefer things that are easier to think about and easier to understand. So if they prefer things that are easier to think about, it means that we as marketers should use 25 cent words, not 75 cent words, right? We should make our, our marketing easy for people to understand, even if we're in B2B, even if we're dealing with a, a sophisticated product or a sophisticated audience, people just prefer things that are easier. So we want to use language that's more accessible. We want to make sure that we don't have thick paragraphs, that just walls of copy coming at people. Uh, we want to make our text easy to, to read. And then finally, uh, there's another principle called loss aversion. And basically what behavioral scientists have found is people are actually twice as motivated to avoid the pain of loss as they are to achieve the pleasure of gain. So in marketing, as we're trying to get people to act on our messages, trying to get them to respond, very often we double down on benefits and there's nothing wrong with them, but it turns out people are more likely to be motivated to avoid the pain of loss than they are to achieve the pleasure of gain. So those are just three very simple examples of how we can create marketing messages that are just more brain friendly. They're just going to automatically prompt that engagement and response that, that we as marketers or people who have to do marketing is one of the many things on our plate. It's going to allow us to get the response we're looking for. So to help us piggyback on your experience of this and make it applicable to the audience, can you describe a test where you've used one of the 25 behavioral science principles that you mentioned in your book? Can you talk us through like one of those and an example where you've tested it within marketing campaigns? Sure, sure. As a matter of fact, the thing that springs to mind right away was an email campaign that we created. And we actually used three different behavioral science principles. We, we added them all in and um, we, you know, we wanted to see, could we get people to open up 401k plan. So these are people at work. We want them to save more for retirement and their companies offered retirement savings plans, 401ks or you know, 403bs if you're in the not-for-profit section uh, sector. But um, basically we want to see if we can get people to do that. And the thing about getting people to save money for retirement is, you know, people are like, I can do it later, right? Like I, I, I'm, not, I'm young yet. I'll do it later. I have plenty of time to do it later. And of course, the sooner you start, the better it is, you know, or they, they're like, you know, I'm, I'm paying the rent. I'm paying, you know, my, my school loans back. I have to buy groceries and pay the utility bill. And, and when the weekend comes, I want some beer and pizza. So I don't have extra money. to. So there's a lot of different barriers to overcome. And so we said, all right, how can we possibly overcome those barriers using some behavioral science? So we had three main behavioral science principles. We relied on social proof, the idea that a lot of people like you, Cole, are already saving money for retirement. Because when people aren't sure what to do, they look around, they see what other people are doing, particularly people like themselves, and they follow their lead. So we use that. That was one stream. And then we had another series where we relied on the scarcity principle because people are more likely to value things that are scarce. And when it's, you know, when it's a good or a service, it's like, oh, we have to get it. When it's information that's not widely available, people have a tendency to believe it more, right? They think it's more truthful. So we talked about secrets to saving money, little known tips that might help you have the money you want in retirement. And then the third thing that we tested 
was the idea of loss aversion, which I mentioned people are more motivated to avoid the pain of loss than they are to achieve the pleasure of gain. So we talked about mistakes that people can make with their retirement savings, mistakes they can make when they're trying to accumulate some money. And overall, the campaign drove a 35% lift in sales over the previous year. And of the three techniques that we we tested, the three tactics, they all performed well. The client was happy with all of them, but the one that had the, the slight advantage, if you will, happened to be loss aversion. You know, people just don't want to make mistakes. I think particularly when it comes to their own money, they don't want to make mistakes. But I think that's a good example of how we've used behavioral science. We've thought about, all right, what might stop someone from doing what we want them to do? What are the behavioral science tactics that could be applicable? And how can we serve up messages around them that will convince people that doing what we want them to do does make sense? That's really interesting because you think, well, it's almost a bit counterintuitive. You would expect that selling the benefits or talking about the, the overall outcome would perform better. Yeah, and, um, and you're absolutely right. It, it is counterintuitive. And in marketing, mm. we're all about the benefits. And I don't want your listeners to think that, oh, Nancy says we, we shouldn't mention benefits. I mean, we should definitely <laughs> mention benefits. We know that they work. But some well-placed loss aversion in addition to the benefits can actually be a good thing. You know, sometimes we don't want to say take advantage of. We want to say don't miss. Or sometimes yeah. instead of saying you can save today, we want to say you'll pay more if you wait until tomorrow. Just little things like that, you know. And then still we want to mention the benefit of our product or service because we know it works. But, but you're absolutely right. It, it's a little counterintuitive, but the numbers were the numbers, 35% lift in sales. That's, uh, you can't argue with that. Which brand have you seen applying behavioral science particularly well within their marketing campaigns? So one that comes to mind is Publishers Clearinghouse. I've been getting their emails recently and they're, well, first of all, they're masters at understanding human behavior. And it's become apparent to me just looking at their emails that they've begun to embrace behavioral science. So I got one that really revolved around something called the endowment effect. And the endowment effect is this, this behavioral science principle that means that we value things more when they're ours. So if there's something that we want to acquire, well, you know, Obviously, we value it. That's why we want to acquire it. But once it becomes ours, once we think of it as, as something that we own, we put even more value on it. So what they do is the way Publishers Clearinghouse works is they'll randomly assign you a number. And then on the predetermined date, they randomly choose a winning number. And if you happen to hold that winning number, you're going to win, you know, $3,000 a week for life or $4,000 a week for life or whatever it happens to be, right? And um, so what they did is they started out by sending an email that was the title to the number that they wanted to assign to me. And they said that I must accept or surrender my title. So, you know, very interesting. It's like, all right, here's your winning number. And, you know, normally they're like, okay, fine. They sent me this winning number, or they sent, not the winning number, but they sent me this number that may be the winning number. I've got my number. We'll see if I win. But they're really trying to get you engaged. So they're like, you know, hey, look, it's not enough to just assign you the number. You have to accept it or surrender it. And if you surrender it, you will forfeit, another great word, you're going to forfeit uh, your opportunity to win if this happens to be the winning number. So they really made you feel like, wow, you know, I need to engage. And then after that, they started, you know, with more and more emails because they wanted to get you more and more involved because ultimately they'd like to sell some magazines, right? You don't have to buy a magazine in order to enter to win, but, but that's what they'd like to do. So they were really strong with the endowment effect. Then they used something called the commitment and consistency principle. And the way that works is once you can get someone to make one decision, they're much more likely to be consistent when subsequent opportunities arise. And it's particularly true if that first ask that you make 
is relatively small. So, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, just accept your title. Fine, I'm going to accept it. Then it's like, ooh, play this game. So they introduced some gamification, you know. Then they were like, ooh, you know, you didn't play the game last time. You know, you missed your chance. So they had some loss aversion. Um, but it, it's it's just really interesting. They are using so many of these tactics and the idea of urgency. Oh, we've got a deadline coming up. You don't want to miss this. It's a very strict deadline. So the, the language that they're using. So I, I really admire them. There's, there's another company, I write about it in my book, they're called Zillion, and they help you just live a healthier lifestyle. They help you manage your weight because if you can manage your weight, you'll uh, reduce your chances of high blood pressure and heart disease and diabetes and, and things like that. And, uh, but they don't, they don't police you the way a diet would. You know? What they do is they lean in hard on something called autonomy bias. And autonomy bias is this deep-seated human need that people have to exert some kind of control over themselves and their environment. So for Zillion, the product, what they do is they say, all right, you know, here's, you know, tell us what your goals are. Here are, you know, maybe three different ways that we can start. Maybe we're going to work on uh, cutting out sugary drinks, or maybe we're going to work on making sure you get eight hours of sleep a night, or maybe, you know, you decide. You decide what it is that, that you want to work on. And this idea of, of having autonomy or having choice is so powerful uh, that it can actually increase the likelihood that we make a buying decision in the moment. There's some research that came out of Tulane University that found if you give people more than one choice, you can nearly quadruple the likelihood they'll make that buying decision in the moment. So choice is, is like hardwired into us. We crave it. And they, they use it in their program, but then they also use it in their marketing materials. They, you know, they, they lean in heavily into behavioral science and, you know, telling people, hey, it, it's up to you. There's a, there's a phrase called, but you are free. It's called the BYAF technique. And when you ask somebody to do something and then you remind them, but you are free to choose, you can increase the likelihood that they'll make that decision because you're reminding them they're the ones who have the control. They're the ones who are in charge. So uh, I write about them in the book, but they do some interesting things, both with their product and then, of course, by extension, with the way that they market it. And that was going to be one of my questions, actually, is do we just need to stick to using one behavioral science principle? But it sounds like we can incorporate multiple within the same campaign. Is that right? Yeah. Well, you know, it's a smart question, actually. And I think the answer is, the short answer is yes, you can use more than one. The The more nuanced answer is you want to look at, you know, your, your medium, the amount of marketing real estate you have. So if you're writing a tweet, it might be tough to get in more than one. If you're doing an email, you could probably get in a few. If you're doing, um, you know, a blog post or you're creating somebody's website, chances are you can get a lot more in. So, you know, I say uh, if you've got the opportunity, absolutely use more of them. But sometimes you're going to say, I don't, I just don't have the room, but I'm going to come down hard on one and, and that should do you well as, you know, as well. Which behavioral science principle do you think is underutilized by marketers? So there's something called the rhyme is reason bias. And it's really interesting. It falls under that notion of cognitive fluency that we talked about earlier. People prefer things that are easier to think about and easier to understand. And the idea of rhyme is reason bias is people judge rhyming phrases to be more truthful. And the reason they do is it's easier for the human brain to process a rhyming phrase. And when it's easier for the brain to process something, it, it simply feels right. And when something feels right, it's not a big leap to assume that it is right. So the opportunity to use rhyming phrases, I, I think it's completely underutilized. We used to see it a lot in taglines, you know, way back in the day, uh, you know, Elka-Seltzer, right? The best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup. And they started that in the 60s. And I believe they continue to this day. But it's not just 
strap lines or, or slogans or taglines, we can use rhyming phrases in our subject lines. We can use them in our headlines, our content titles, even our calls to action. You know, don't delay, sign up now. That's good. That's a nice strong subject line or a nice strong call to action rather, but don't delay, sign up today is even stronger because it rhymes. You know, it's got that urgency. It's got that power to it, but it, it's, it's a rhyming line. So I really feel that uh, it's, it's an underutilized opportunity right now for marketers to inject some rhyming phrases into headlines, subject lines, taglines, just because people not only just remember them better, but they have a tendency to believe them more. And in marketing, you know, if people don't believe us, we're sunk. We, you know, we want to get people to believe us. We want to build that trust. And I think a rhyming, a rhyming line is a great way to do that. Love that. Really actionable. I already made a note for myself there. So one behavioral science principle that is probably the most well-known and the most widely used at the other end of the spectrum is social proof. We often see it on websites. There's a collection of logos on a landing page showing clients that you already have, etc. But how do we take the application of social proof from good, which I'm sure most companies are doing, to great? Sure. So I think there's, there's two ways. And uh, both of them actually revolve around testimonials. So testimonials are a, a great way to use social proof. And as you indicate, marketers are pretty familiar with social proof, pretty familiar with testimonials. You know, we know that they work. But you can take a good testimonial and turn it into a great one by doing two things. One, you want to make sure that the testimonial giver is as similar to the testimonial receiver as possible. So if you have a product for CFOs, have your testimonials from CFOs. If you have a product for new mothers in New England, make sure your testimonials come from new mothers in New England. The closer the two are, the better off it is. And then the second way that we can go from good to great is, is a little more counterintuitive, actually, because sometimes we think, all right, I'm going to search you know, my, my list of testimonials. I'm going to find the absolute best one I can, the one that says that I am wonderful. But you don't necessarily want to do that. What you want to do is you want to find one that starts where your reader is, which is generally speaking at a place of skepticism, right? If, if they're looking at these testimonials, quite convinced, they're wondering, you know, is it worth the money? Is it any better than my current solution? It, you know, is it as good as they say it is? I mean, they're the marketer. Of course, they say it's good, right? So there are all these things that people are wondering. And if you can find a testimonial that started there and then ended in positive resolution, it's so much, you know, so much better. So instead of saying, uh, you know, I tried Acme coffee mugs, they're wonderful. You start with, I used to think all oh, coffee mugs were the same. I mean, you know, you put the coffee in, you have a handle, what could be different? But then I tried Acme coffee mugs. Uh, they just feel better in my hand. The coffee stays warmer longer. I would never use anything else again. You know, it's like you started with that. I thought they were all the same. How, you know, how, how different could they be? And you take somebody through that journey and when people read that, they're like, that's exactly what I thought. I was feeling the same way. Oh, wow. That, that testimonial from Cole, he took a chance, but I'm going to benefit from the fact that he rolled the dice, bought that coffee mug. Turns out it was a good move on his part. And now I can benefit from that. So that's how you can take good social proof and turn it into great social proof. Is there any other principles that you wanted to cover today that you think would be applicable or have we touched on the main ones? You know, there's one more that we haven't mentioned that I think your, your listeners might be interested in. It's this idea of providing the reason why. Behavioral scientists have found that people are more likely to do what you ask them to do when you give them a reason why. And it doesn't even have to be this ironclad, bulletproof reason. You know, it'd be great to say, oh, listen to my podcast because it, after a month of listening to my podcast, you'll become a millionaire. That'd be a great promise to make. And I sure, I'm sure if you made it, people would be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to listen. But 
you know, you can't guarantee that, you, you know, you, you're not going to promise something that isn't necessarily true, you know. But the thing about providing the reason why is it doesn't have to be this fabulous claim. You just have to have it. You know, sometimes as marketers, we think if I just tell people about my product and I list the features and benefits, I tell them where they can find it and what the price is, and it's all you know, accurate and spelled properly, you know, I'm good, I'm done. And that's not entirely true because we, what we want to do is we want to come full circle. We want to talk about the product and, and you know, what it's going to do for you. And then we want to, again, explain why you should do what I'm asking you to do, why you should buy it. And it could be something really simple, like buy this product because I think you'll really like it. Buy this product because lots of people already enjoy it, you know, but having that reason why, and, and in the two examples I just mentioned, I use the word because, and there's a researcher called Ellen Langer who came out of Harvard University, and she ran an experiment that proved that because is what's known as an automatic compliance trigger. When we see or hear it, we just start to nod yes. We, we get into this agreeable mindset before we've even processed what comes after it. So before we've even processed the words that come after because, when we hear because, we're already you know starting to say yes. So Providing the reason why is critical because you have the reason why more people are going to do what you're asking them to do. Teeing up that reason why with the word because makes it even more likely that you're going to get that response you're looking for. So that's such an easy thing for marketers to do. It's such an easy thing for anybody to do, whether you're trying to get your kids to go to bed on time or convince your, your spouse to go to the movie you want to see. It's just a great little tip in terms of being able to persuade people. So simple. Love it. Nancy, thank you so much for joining me today and taking me through some of these principles from your book. Where would you like people to find out more about behavioral science if they're interested? Sure. So, you know, people can follow me. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. You can visit my agency's website. My agency is HBT Marketing, and we abbreviate that as HBTMKTG. We shorten marketing and HBT actually stands for human behavior triggers because that's what we're all about. We take the marketing best practices and we add the behavioral science. So there's lots of, you know, interviews and articles on our site. So I encourage people to check that out and absolutely encourage them to, to pick up a copy of using behavioral science and marketing. You know, there, it's easy to read. It's easy to get through. It's practical. It's actionable. Your eyes are not going to roll on the back of your head, uh, but you'll walk away with a lot of tactics and tips and techniques that you can apply right away and start to see that instant increase in engagement and response that that most marketers are in fact looking for. Hi Nancy, again, thank you so much. Really enjoyed the conversation. Sounds great. Thank you, Cole. I really appreciate it. 